Hey everyone, welcome to the Grabs Podcast, where we bring the stories of real life rescues to you firsthand from those involved. I'm Grant Schwabe, I'll be your host today. Today with me I've got Sean, he's a lieutenant from Lake Mary Fire Department in Florida. Welcome Sean, how you doing? Hey Grant, thanks for having me. Yeah man, um, so we've bumped into each other a couple times over, over the last little while. Looking forward to hearing the story about a grab you guys made. Um, in October 2nd, 2019. Uh, but first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about Lake Mary Fire Department. Go. Sure. Yeah. So we, um, we're we a two-station department. Uh, we're in you know Seminole County. It's just a suburb just north of Orlando. Uh, we run mutual aid uh, with the other jurisdictions around us. So, And it's a true mutual aid where uh, the call goes out closest units go. So a lot of times we're working with, um, you know, crews and, and departments that aren't our own. Um, so there's some inherent challenges with that. Um, and hopefully if you're on, um, like regularly, you kind of get to know the guys and girls in the other surrounding departments as well. Right. Um, we are a two station department. We run two engines, two rescues and a battalion. And um, our rescues are traditional kind of Florida rescues, right? <laughs> Not heavy rescues like FDNY or something like that. They're, you know, glorified ambulances, but the personnel on board are still capable of doing firefighting, right? And they run two. We run, we're staffed four on an engine, but we'll ride down to three depending on, on staffing, right? And... Um, I think that's about it. We but, don't so have it, a tower. We don't have a truck in, a, in our department. So whenever we need a truck, it's coming from somewhere else. So let's and talk about have, what you guys get on. A, yeah, let's talk about what you guys get on a residential fire. Yeah. So, it, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, that would be great if we had both of our stations and all five of our units as part of the complement but sometimes just where the fire plots, you just never quite know who you're going to get. Right. This particular night we did, um, we had both our engines, both our rescues and our battalion. Um, it was, it's funny cause it's actually, we, we were the closest unit, but it's actually not our jurisdiction as the counties, unincorporated counties jurisdiction. Um, but we hands down were the closest unit to it. Um, trying to think what else so how many people is that put put on and do you get like once it's a working fire are you automatically calling for mutual aid to to balance out some help or no so like? our ims is you know I, I have to give it to uh you know the guys who created and have been updating our ims over the years um they put together a pretty good plan as to who gets dispatched to what so and it's broken down into everything from a single family residential you know, to guard apartments, to high rise structures. And like the normal complement on this one, since it was a multifamily um, garden apartment, you know, we got three engines, two rescues, uh, a tower, a squad, and then two battalions. Then that was the first alarm. Um, and typically, depending on what the update is, it's not uncommon to hear somebody call for a second en route, which they did. And then the second is uh, two more battalions, um, three more engines. Uh, let's see, another rescue and another tower. So, so usually we have 
quite a good compliment. Now, the interesting thing about this particular night, and one of the, I think one of the interesting reasons why it didn't really make a lot of headlines that, you know, we had actually got this grab was we actually had four fires in our county on that night, four working fires, um, which is extremely abnormal to have them like that. And it wasn't because of lightning strikes or like some of the things we typically have from like inclement weather. It was just a weird set of circumstances where we just had a, you know, four different working fires. So. Yeah. Before you said that wasn't normal. I was going to ask the next question is, are you taking applications for four fires in the night? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Very abnormal. All right. So um, who's, who's, who's getting searches done on your fires or how, how do you, how do you <clears> determine what everybody's assignment are on uh, pre-arrival IC driven? How, what's, how's that look? Sure. So it is, it's dictated in our IMS what units, when they arrive, what they should be doing. Um, but, you know, it's not uncommon for somebody to blow an assignment or just how people arrive and what the need is. Uh, they, the, the, you know, the incident commander might dictate, hey, look, typically like a rescue is going to be doing a primary search, right? Um, which is two personnel. The problem with that sometimes is, uh, our rescues, it's not uncommon for our rescues to have, you know, lesser experienced personnel on them. And, um, if, if the need is there and a, and a unit arrives there earlier than a rescue, um, it wouldn't be uncommon to just go ahead and assign the search to that next unit. So like maybe, <clears throat> maybe you have the first, first two engine hits the, um, fire attack, second two engine, hits the hydrant, grabs a backup line, third new engine, if they get there quick enough, they might end up with primary, even though the rescue is supposed to get it. The, we have, there are kind of built in, I guess, verbiage in our IMS that says, if the life safety hazard exists, we're able to kind of have some flexibility with that, right? But I would say typically it's gonna be a rescue, meaning right. a two person ambulance with firefighters trained on it. Then how are you guys doing your searches? Uh, how, what are you guys teaching them? Are they doing a split search oriented VES, all of the above, whatever's needed? So we've, we have trained on all I, in my department. I can say for our department, we've trained on all. Um, I think really the challenge is, is with a lot of the turnover we've had in a lot of the departments around us lately. Do I know that each person who's riding on the rescue has the amount of experience and knowledge to make those decisions. Right. Meaning size up the structure and say, okay, my best access point for a search might be VES as opposed to some type of traditional, you know, from the fire search. Right. Um, in this case, it was kind of cut and dry. They just, they were like the battalion, he came from Orlando and, and he's, pretty confident in his command role. And he just, he was assigning right off the bat units for, you know, what they were going to do. And I was on the engine. So my intention was I'm, I'm pulling the line and the guys behind me on the rescue are going to be behind me searching for the victim. Right. What's interesting about this one is it came out at one in the morning and, um, the actual update was, and I, I, I printed it out, was 
caller advised the, uh, the apartment next door is on fire. And they said they could actually hear, uh, the, the caller said she knocked on the door, no one opened the door, but she could hear screaming and nobody was coming out, right? So the interesting part of that is you, you, everybody gets elevated, right? This is the opportunity to do what we've been training and paid to do. <laughs> we get there and I'm all amped up and ready to give a good size up and get this thing rolling. And all I see is blue lights. There might've been 12 or 15 cop cars all over the area, blocking the hydrants, blocking, you know what I'm saying? And um, just one of those interesting times where you sit there and you go, you have it, you maybe visualize the opportunity to like put all of your stuff, you know, on the table for this good call. And you get your first curveball right as you're pulling into the parking lot, right? If, if um, the cops aren't stepping on your ankles, they're trying to make your grab for you. It's just not fair. <laughs> we need to take their lights away from them or something. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, so talk, talk to me a little bit. Let's, we start jumping into this call. So one in the morning, October 2nd, um, you guys are on the the tail end part of your tour comes in as an apartment fire, uh, next to, and, uh, just walk me through kind of everything. You started out with, so we got cops kind of blocking it all up. Where's it turn from there? Yeah. So, um, so battalion 37, engine 37 is my unit and rescue 37. We were all kind of in tow, right? And as we're cruising up to the scene, I'm trying to get a good size up. My engineer hits with the spot. Like our, our truck's got great lighting on it. So it lights up the scene as we're coming in. I'm looking at the structure um, and I call it as a three-story multifamily, right? Wood, wood frame, garden apartment. A little bit of a mistake there, you know, and we can kind of get into this later, but I've been in these buildings a million times from medical calls and I saw three stories, but really what it was was two stories, the second story having a loft. I missed that. And I think this is one of the things you talk about when you kind of go back and you look at these things as areas of improvement. Well, that was a three story all day at one in the morning when I was looking at it, right? Um, walk up, no light, just like a very light haze and an odor, but nothing obvious. Um, I kind of look at my backwards guy. He's got about six months on my engineer's got, he's got about as much time on as me about, you know, 15 years or so. And he's spotting the truck trying to leave room for uh, the aerial, but the cops are there. So I've got a radio to the battalion. Hey, look, you know, we got to get law enforcement out of here. They've got to leave some room for the apparatus. So that was kind of battalion got handed that, that ball. Right. I walk up to see if I can't get a 360 uh, as a backwards guy stretching the line and he's already got the line. He's pulling it and I walk up the stairs and I can see uh, second floor. The door's already been forced by PD and smoke's coming out of it and I can see fire through the window. So basically if we're looking at the structure, the alpha side being the street side, you walked up the stairway in the breezeway and the main entrance to the apartment would be the Bravo side, right? And the alpha side would be a slider, like a slider going to a balcony. So anyway, we, um, we go up there. Then I radioed the update to battalion. Hey, look, we do have a working fire. Uh, gave him the apartment number and I went ahead and got with my probie and stretched the line, right? 
Coming up behind me was a rescue, uh, and I had heard battalion give them the assignment for primary. Uh, my engineer had already pointed out the hydrant to the next two engine, and they were making that connection. And essentially identified it as a kitchen fire, a working kitchen fire. Still hadn't identified that there was a loft, though. Um, I kind of missed that one. So what was interesting was we, and this is probably one of those things that comes with a little bit of time. And, you know, we talk about controlling the door, right? Well, the door was wide open and it started to really start, the smoke started to get a little bit more tumultuous and black and banking down. So I kind of glanced under while my probie was um, masking up and everything. And then I closed the door. Tactically, that's one of these little things that I've been doing now for, for a little bit, and it really makes a difference. Gives you an idea of what you're going to see before you go in there. Um, gives you an opportunity to look quickly to see if you actually have a victim within grabbing, you know, within distance. And then, um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's awesome. I know, I know what us and a lot of groups are teaching just life fire layout. Look under that smoke layer before. Uh, we screw it all up and look for that, obviously, a uh, line of sight grab uh, where the fire's at and confirm all the, uh, confirm that inside looks like we had planned on the outside. So, awesome. So, we go in, we've got a heavy volume of fire. It's off to our left. There's like a high bar with, you know, like, um, like those high seats there. We push that, we get around into the kitchen and, you know, I got to give it to the, my probie. I'm sure his eyes were about as big as they could be, right? This is his first fire. And um, he starts knocking it down and he's doing a pretty good job. Now, the interesting thing was it was pretty warm, but it wasn't very hot. And I didn't quite understand why, because we had a lot of smoke, a lot of really thick black smoke. And, um, but what was going on was that kitchen went out to where the loft was. So all the heat and smoke was going up. And so little did I know with the search crew coming behind me, they hit a couch, which directed them off to the right. And then they hit the stairwell, right? So there was a little bit of lack of communication um, on our part between me and the rescue. I thought they were behind me. Meanwhile, they had gone to the right and up the stairs. So while we're doing our fire attack, I can hear them moving and, but I heard them moving further away from me. Right. And I, and I, I just was kind of trying to process it all. And like I had anticipated they were actually going to be closer to me in the fire and then working away. Right. And so as I heard them moving away from me, uh, then I just go, I went ahead and I grabbed the tick and I started scanning just in the area close to me. And I think what's interesting is, when we do training, which obviously me and you have trained together before, like one of the things that you always kind of talk about is like that situational awareness, right? So I took a minute, I'm using the tick, I'm scanning around and I'm thinking, I'm waiting for the rescue to say, Hey, we got the victim. Right. And the more time that's going by in my head that I'm not hearing them say they have a victim, the more I'm getting like anxious, like, they heard this guy screaming or a girl screaming or whoever screaming, like, what's the deal? We should have had this person by now. And of course you have no concept of time. Everything's kind of happening at what seems like a snail's pace. Right? So I'm scanning, scanning, and I'm reaching around and I find, um, one door goes to a pantry, nothing in there. 
firefighter still whipping around. He's knocking it down pretty good. I'm scanning back. I can notice that the, the hot spots are kind of in the heat context as far as the tick is concerned are, are getting lower. Um, but now my, my visibility has gone to crap, right? We're kind of whited out. My mask keeps getting that kind of moisture. So is a tick. So I'm constantly wiping it. I'm scanning. I'm using my hands. I'm doing all the stuff that I've learned all the years. And, um, but I'm also listening, you know, and I'm giving updates to command. Hey, we got a knock on a fire, right? We're checking for extension, but I'm also like, where is this victim? I come to the next door behind me, push it open, scan. And I kind of noticed in the tick, what looked like a toilet. And so I'm like, okay, it's a bathroom. I could feel the difference in the floor. I noticed something in tick and it by no means looked like a person. Um, it just looked like something different than what I was expecting. Um, like a, you know, bathtub or whatever else. And I put my hand out and I think one of the things that's, that's taught a lot now we've, we've gotten away from is kind of a tool is dumb and your hand is smart, right? Put my hand out and lo and behold, there's a foot, right? And I'm like, who is it? Who's the guy from um, Georgia, the Lieutenant Dan, Danny, right? Had gotten in trouble for going in on a search. Yeah. Danny Dwyer. Yeah. Danny. I think I remember him saying something like, Holy shit. <laughs> this is real, right? Like I got a victim. And I remember thinking, holy shit, like this is real. We got a victim. Like all this stuff that you do, all this training, all this preparation, all these years of pulling dummies and pulling each other out and doing all this training, like there it was, there was a foot, right? And now I'm working my way down and, you know, there's his torso and then his face. And I'm like, wow, I've got one, call it in let's get them out. And I can notice one of the one, one of the strangest things that it's the byproduct of flowing a lot of water is the water was going into the bathroom. And because he was face down, I could tell he was breathing because every time he would blow out, you could actually see the water, you know, um, kind of moving with his breath, right. That was on the floor. So anyway, call for a victim. Um, and it was one of those things where it's like, as soon as I called for the victim, my firefighter dropped the line. He grabbed his uh, feet. I grabbed his head. We start dragging him. We immediately meet, I think, two separate crews. They took him from there, got him to the landing. Um, and from there, it was kind of like all hands on deck, right? Heavier guy, um, naked, right? <laughs> Which leads into a funny conversation I got to have with him about a year later. Um, so yeah, naked, slippery, you know, I think, I think you guys call it like dirty grabs. I mean, it wasn't pretty, but it was fast because we literally went in, we had a good idea of where we were in the apartment. It wasn't that far, you know, maybe about 20, 15, 20 feet from where I found them from where we came in and, um, got him out. And then the process started happening behind me at that point, it was kind of a handoff. Right. And, uh, because I knew where we were at by then the smoke had started to lift a little bit. They had vented a window above me. Um, I quickly went back to that room to look for more victims, didn't find any. And then by that point, the, everything started to escalate. right? The fire was essentially kind of knocked down. 
ventilation had been established. A lot of the heat and gases on the loft in the second room had been vented out. No other victims were found on the primary. Um, and it was just like this crazy, like bread and butter. Like we got the call, we did the work and now what's the outcome of this patient. Right. Um, so there, that was kind of, that was it. Right. And then I went and I looked back and I'm like, everything felt like an eternity and where's the rescue and all this other stuff. And I looked at the times and I came to realize like, we did a great job that night, but there were some areas for improvement. Right. And, um, one of the things for me right off the bat was like time. Right. And I think I hear this a lot. This isn't our time, right? It's their time. So the call came in at one Oh three. We're in route at one Oh four. We're on scene at one Oh eight. I'm doing a three sixty at one Oh nine line to the door. One eleven. right? Water on the fire. One twelve. knock on the fire. One thirteen. victim found a one fourteen. Right? So, if I look at it from that way, it's like, okay, well, you know, that's respectable, I guess. But then I start thinking where are all the areas we could have shaved time. Right. And what if this outcome for this patient isn't good? Cause we just could have shaved a little bit more time. Right. And, um, so I start working through all that. Like, what is it that I could do better? We could do better. But what's interesting is, is they take the guy to the hospital he has um, a little bit of a, a recovery on his hands because he had a lot of smoke inhalation and some minor burns. Um, but he survives. But then it's COVID. <laughs> so we can't, we were going to do this whole dog and pony where we get to meet him. And like a year goes by and we never got to actually meet the guy, right? So fast forward to a year later and um, we actually got to meet the guy. And, um, you know, I don't know if we're allowed to give names or not. I'll just call him T real cool guy, real nice guy, young guy, um, fell asleep. He was cooking, uh, had some friends over, um, had recently moved there, had been there that long, fell asleep, tells me he always sleeps naked. <laughs> tells me that his mom says, don't ever go to sleep naked because, you know, if something happens, the cops or the firemen are going to be there and they're going to be messing with you naked. Well, lo and behold, that was his night uh, for that to come to fruition. And from this point on, he never sleeps naked again, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. But, um, you know, it was a victory, right? It was pretty cool, you know. I got, we got to meet the guy. We got to hear about him and his family and his life and everything else. And, you know, it's just one of those things where, the call came out, we were able to do what we were asked to do and it had a great outcome, right? So I want to, um, I want to hit a few spots on here. Um, number one, you know, when you go through the whole timeline, it seems like a long time. And I think you mentioned that, but really from, from arrival to victim out or victim found you're five minutes, that that's pretty respectable. That's, that's what we're shooting for. Uh, the other thing I'd like to bring up to, to folks is it's not, the Superman stories, you know, Sean and his crew didn't do anything crazy. They just did their jobs. And what I love about it was that rescue split um, on the search and they ended up going upstairs. And uh, so it was actually the engine team, <laughs> the fire attack that found it. So once you had the fire knockdown, 
you know, I'm a, I'm an officer just like you, that it's important to, uh, once that fire's knocked down that we can do our part and search back. I mean, bathrooms aren't a high probability area where victims are found. I think the last numbers I looked in rescue survey was like 8%, but human nature is if there's a fire, it's hot. <laughs> What's the opposite of hot, cold water. So human nature would say, you know, bathrooms don't make up a huge area, uh, percentage wise of the house, but 8%, um, you know, that's a, that's, that's pretty big in the scheme of things. I think I had Skip Coleman on the journeyman fire podcast. We were talking about it. And I think one year in Toledo, they had like 12 victims they found in bathrooms in one single year, uh, which seems, which speaks a lot to, to human nature. Um, so large victim naked, so nothing to grab onto what, and you said he was slippery. How'd you guys navigate that drag? So it's, you know, it's funny. We were talking earlier, you know, we've got, we've had some turnover these last few years with retirements and everything else. And, and I would say just in our entire area, I see it in other uh, departments as well. A lot of young faces. Right. And so we were spending quite a bit of time working through the basics because we just kept getting new people in. So it's like, how do you pull a hose? How do you search? How do you do this stuff? It seemed really kind of rudimentary, but one of the things that we were doing too was, how do you drag people, right? Because you get firefighters that are all shapes and sizes. And just like, for instance, on my crew, I've got a guy who's like 6'5", 250, and another guy who's 5'9", 160, right? They're going to have to drag victims differently. Um, Their strength, their height, everything changes it. So we started working through some of the drags where, you know, you're going to wrap the victims legs under your arms? Uh, are you going to be able to kind of use their hands uh, as handcuffs to protect their head? I mean, there's just a lot that goes into how and why and, and where. And um, it's funny because we probably touched on drags like, I don't know, maybe a couple hours with each new personnel. And then it's just one of those things you have to circle back around to it. And as soon as I told, um, you know, Johnson, the guy on the nozzle, I said, Hey, I got a victim here, grab his feet. It's like, he ran over there, <laughs> locked him under his, his um, arms. I grabbed his wrists and it was, I, I don't, I don't think either one of us even considered trying to go for the, the bulk of the weight, which was his torso and his body. Um, and even though he was slippery, we both had a good grab and he moved relatively quick because he was slippery. The ground was slippery from all the water and then, like I said, at that point, then all the rest of the units were coming. So then it was like all hands on deck. I think um, engine 33, squad two, rescue 33. I mean, we had a bunch of guys meet us right there. And now that was – this was actually a good point, though, too, and we've talked about this since, was so now you got the victim out of the IDLH, right? And you're going to start administering – you know, in this case, I think they actually started working CPR on him first, but you're going to administer some type of medical care, but then you got to get him into a rescue and get him out of there. Had they tried to drag him down these concrete steps, you know, could it have been done? Sure. Would it have been pretty? No. Uh, and could it have caused more damage? Maybe, but they kind of got him out, started working them. And while they were working them, another crew member threw up uh, what's called the transfer tarp. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have those for some of the larger patients on EMS calls. Threw that under them. It's got all these handles on it. And we literally 
just a group of them just grabbed the tarp underneath this, you know, gentleman and were able to get him down the stairs to the rescue for transport. And, um, it's one of those things in hindsight, I'm like, all right, let's go buy a bunch of these things. They're cheap. They're disposable and keep them at the ready ready. So that if we get an actual victim again, and we find them in an area that's further away from where we got to get them to, it's a really easy way to transport somebody, you know? Now that brings up a good point. And, you know, I know we, we hit a lot on engineers need to be anticipating the next move, throwing ladders, doing all that kind of stuff. But if you, you're right, if you have those, or if you don't have those and you got a Stokes basket and you're on a second floor apartment job, throw that up somewhere. So it's, it's readily available. If it's out, people are going to use it. If it's not out, they're not. So especially for the guys that, you know, are, are maybe not involved actively in the firefight, getting that stuff set up so that, uh, things can happen. That's an awesome point. Is there anything else that uh, you want to uh, bring up on this as we kind of bring this podcast to a close? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, it's one of those things where um, I think most guys and girls, when they get in the fire service, you know, the point of the job is to prepare so that when you get these calls, you have the opportunity to put your skills and whatnot to the test. Right. And I don't think anybody sits there and says, Hey, like I want something bad to happen to somebody, but the reality is it's, it's going to happen. And I think for, for a lot of the, you know, the people who take a lot of pride in the work, they say, look, if that call is going to happen, I want to be there. Right. I want to try and do my best to, to give this person or this, you know, scenario, a good outcome. And I think that's exactly kind of, that was the thing I remember taking away from it was, you know, <clears throat> I had years and years of fires that, you know, a lot of them are just these very minimal, you know, pot on a stove or lightning strike, quick extinguishment. But each time I tried to take something away from what I could do better, where I could slow things down mentally, you know, work through some of the, the, um, inherent changes that your body goes through when you feel stressors and anxiety and, and, you know, you start physically taxing yourself. And it's one of those things where as time has gone on, I feel like that's a valuable thing that I was able to maybe put to the test that particular night was I didn't do what I did as a first year Lieutenant, which was just sit on the line with my probie firefighter and put fire out. Like he's putting fire out. I trust that he's doing his job and I'm now looking around him doing my job and everybody's job, which is life safety, right? That's, you know, that's going to be the priority for, for what we do. And, um, this was a team effort and, you know, let me just reiterate, reiterate that one thing we didn't talk about was, I don't know if you guys carry cyano kits. Um, but when squad got there, they split their crew. Two of them went up to complete the primary and the other two went with our rescue who had patient care and they started a cyano kit and hands down the hospital said that had we not administered that cyano kit, he might not have had such a good outcome um, because of how much of the um, smoke he had inhaled. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where we, we do train and we say, Hey, look, we got a victim in, in training and we drag them to the door and then we, <laughs> we kind of go back to doing our stuff. But the reality is there's a whole bunch more stuff that needs to happen for that victim after. And, um, there's just been a lot of, um, 
like I said, I think it was one of those things where it was a victory for a lot of different people. They got to put a lot of different skills to the test that night with a really good outcome. So, very good. I'm I'm glad you brought up the cyano kits. It's not something I want to uh, let go. Uh, I know a lot of these scrabs that we're we're talking about as of late. They talk about the the benefits of putting that cyano kit on. I know. I think our area we got grants and we had them on our rigs for a while, and then they've gone away when i when i checked what's going on with them they're like oh i think the uh the duty officers for ems are carrying them i talked to them and they're like nobody's carrying them again and i know psionic it can be kind of expensive but i know there's some other options and if if your department doesn't have anything in its repertoire to to help those victims once they get out you probably need to look into it and that's about as far as paramedicine as i want to get into on this <laughs> right. um but but we got to do our part it's not enough just to bring them out let's let's do the whole whole thing because we know it works and i think the uh the rescue survey questions have been changed or updated to reflect and ask if people are getting cyano kits so hopefully as time goes on we'll have some harder harder numbers or, or better figures to look at that well sean i appreciate you coming on um and sharing the story if you make a grab or assist alive or deceased please go to www.firefighterrescuesurvey.com take that short survey that information is for us, by us, and updated real time. If you want to share your story on the podcast, reach out to me, Grant Schwalbe, Justin McWilliams, or Nick Ledeen. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening.